are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Africa Rights Talk. We have Dr. Jonathan Capre from the University of Pretoria. I will not say much about him at this point as I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. Yeah, hello, Tatinda. Thank you for having me today with you. My name is Jonathan Capre from Burkina Faso. I was born in Ivory Coast where I did my primary and high school studies. And I went back to Burkina for the university where I studied law and I graduated with a master degree. In law. And after I moved to Switzerland, where I did another master degree in international and comparative law. And last year, I did a PhD in international law. So this is, in a few words, what I can say as presentation to introduce myself. I'd like to know if you can describe the nature of the work that you do at the International Development Law Unit at the University of Pretoria. Okay, so as you said, I'm now at the Center for Human Rights of the University of Pretoria as postdoctoral researcher since the beginning of this year. And at the International Development Law Unit, I'm acting as program manager for our LLM program in international trade and investment law in Africa. And I'm also a researcher in international law. So as program manager, uh, I'm involved in the management of the TILA program. And I also serve as academic advisor to our students. And as researcher, I'm interested in global economic governance, business and human rights, and also the international investment law, more specifically. And if I want to, to give some examples of research, I'm currently investigating the participation of African local communities in the settlement of investment disputes. And I'm looking more specifically at how such participation can be improved. Because in the context of investment arbitration, we have two main parties, the foreign investors who initiate the proceedings and the host state, which is usually the respondent party. However, investment has also impact on the right of local communities. So my preoccupation here is to see how the participation can be improved, given the fact that right now they don't have sufficient room to participate. They don't have uh, the right to initiate proceedings. And the only thing they can do is to participate as third party. This is to submit amicus curious brief. And even this is not automatically granted, but it's rather on a case-by-case approach. So I'm investigating whether there are some initiatives or techniques to improve such, such participation. And also, maybe another example of research is was one paper on corruption in international investment arbitration. Uh, also, another one on the future of the settlement of investment disputes in Africa, because right now we don't have a consensus at the continental level on whether or not we need to have ISDS, what we call ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement. Some countries like South Africa doesn't have this option in the legislation, and some others are in favor of this system. So. The question is to see if we do we need it, if yes, why, if not, what can be the alternatives to such a dispute settlement mechanism. So there's are some examples I can give of research I'm currently doing here at the ITLU. One of your most recent achievements was to be awarded the 2020 Law Faculty Prize from the University of Lausanne after for the best doctoral dissertation. What issues did you focus on in your dissertation and what impact will this have on the work that you do? For my PhD, I was focused on the role of counsel and advocates in the settlement of 
international disputes and their contribution to the development of international law in general. This role raises many issues, such as to what extent the current rules can be improved and some other issues. But maybe what I will do is to focus on the issues I think that are particularly relevant for African countries. And one of them is the issue of legal aid in international education. Consider while in almost all national and supranational judicial systems, the provision of legal aid is of particular importance. This is not the case with international education. It is true that some international tribunals have financial, what we call financial assistance fund, which aims at helping developing countries to meet part of the costs involved in international education. But it's safe to say that access to legal aid in the context of international education does not occupy a principal position. Maybe because one of the most important principles of international law is what we call the sovereign equality of states. In other words, since all of the states are equally sovereign, it is assumed that they will be able to adequately organize their representation before international court and tribunal. However, this is not the case and many, many small and developing countries are struggling to adequately defend themselves before international court and tribunals. And this with sometimes important financial consequences. If I want to uh, give one example, recently last year, a country from the Sadek community, the Republic of Mozambique, if I want to name it, I will use the word wasted nearly 2 million US dollars in one case that should have never been brought before the tribunal because the, the international agreement that was invoked as the basis of the claim never entered into force. So it took almost five years to such country to realize that this agreement was not enforced, so there was no reason for these proceedings to continue. And with such amounts, maybe this state could have built some schools, could have fulfilled some of its social and economic obligation for local communities rather than wasting it in those kind of proceedings. So one of the questions is how to help litigants to fully participate in the settlement of international disputes and to avoid those poor management of cases as it was the case in the, the, the ODEC against the Republic of Mozambique. And until a recent date, there was only one important center to assist states in this regard. And fortunately, if I might say, this issue has recently gained attention in international Law. And currently, there are also discussions regarding the establishment of an advisory center on investment law. And the idea is for such center to assist litigant state in handling investment cases. Right now, I should emphasize that investment law is probably the most dynamic field of international law, modern. So those are the kind of issues I was dealing with in the context of the, the PhD. And right now, sometimes what we, we try to do is also to bring the law out of the books and to have practical impact. And I think in the current context of my work, as I said earlier, I'm acting as an academic advisor for the, our student in the LLM in International Trade Investment law. For me, I think this is where we need to start with training the lawyers, African lawyers, to understand what are the specificities of this field of international law, what are the, the techniques so that in the future, our countries, those states will be able to properly defend themselves. Because even if we have right now an advisory center in investment law, its impact will be limited. But if we have a new generation of lawyers who are well-trained and who are in position of understanding and advise countries, maybe we'll have a significant impact. So this can be a link I can draw between the research I carry in the context of the, the PhD and what I'm trying to do right now. This sounds like very important work that needs to be done. What I'd like to know is what motivated you to actually look into this area? Actually,
actually, I had to confess that at the beginning, when I was looking for a topic for the PhD, because in the context of my master, I was interested in international economic law. And I investigated some of the agreements concluded between Switzerland and African countries. But after, and in discussion with my then supervisor, I realized that in some of those cases, international cases before the International Court of Justice, before the, the dispute settlement body of the World Trade Organization, before the International Tribunal for the Law Sea, there was a, a problem with some lawyers. Because some of the judges were saying that what, what can be the legitimacy of a counsel who doesn't know nothing about a state if this counsel appears before the court on behalf of one state. And there was they were raising some other issues. So I said maybe there is room here to, to do some research. And after a while, when I went to the field of international investment law, it was clear that there was a need for this kind of research. And what is interesting is that even right now, because we are we have some ongoing negotiations in terms of reforms that needs to be done. And this issue is one of the most important that is currently discussed. So this means the need is there and I I wasn't wrong in choosing this topic for my PhD dissertation. <laughs> well, clearly, I mean, you've won a, an award for it. So I definitely think that was a great decision that you made there. So now moving on, how can we make economic reforms compatible with human rights obligations in the African context? This is a broad question, but if I want to maybe focus on international economic law reforms, I will say that this can be done both at substantive and procedural levels. At the substantive level, we need to ensure that the agreement signed by African states, notably the bilateral investment treaties, give enough space for the states to implement the human rights obligations. So, and this can be done through protection of a specific type of investment. Uh, when we take the Pan-African Investment Code at the Article 1, it says that uh, it's only protects investment that foster the sustainable development of past states. So this is one approach to the definition of which kind of investment we want to protect. This also can be done through the inclusion of provision related to the power to regulate for the host state. Because in most of the cases, investment cases, we can see that what is challenged is the the ability for the host state to take some measures. So if we, we have it clearly mentioned on the treaty that the state has this power and this cannot be challenged, unless maybe for decision taken on a discriminatory basis, this can help also state to fulfill its human rights obligations. And there is also, uh, so if I want maybe to give one example in this regard, we have a bilateral investment treaty between Morocco and Nigeria, which said that at its article uh, 15, I think that the party recognized that it is inappropriate to encourage investment by weakening or reducing the protection accorded in domestic labor law. So accordingly, each party shall ensure that it does not waive or otherwise derogate from or offer to waive to otherwise derogate from its labor's law where the waiver or derogation would be inconsistent with the labor right conferred by domestic law and international labor instrument in which both are party, both parties are signatories or fail to effectively enforce its labor's law through a sustained or recurring course of action or inaction. This is also an approach. A, a, a third 
technique can be also to put some human rights obligations for investors. So when we ask investors to carry environmental assessment or social assessment, what we call a corporate social responsibility, even if right now this is not really clear, but those are some techniques that can help at the substantive level to uh, what we call to rebalance and help state to provide investors with the protection they need without reducing the while fulfilling its human rights obligation also. I'm talking about the state. But at a procedural level, there are also some techniques since at the substantive level, it's a quite recent phenomenon. For, I mean, for so long, states were not really interested in including those uh, techniques. So uh, when there is a problem and at the procedural levels, there are also some techniques, and currently we have some discussions at the level of the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, which is focused on procedural reforms. And one interesting point, I think this point was mentioned by the South African government in its submission because the state were invited to submit some recommendations, some ideas. And so the, the point was to allow all the affected parties, which includes also local communities, to initiate arbitration when the rights are affected by investment. So we, so according to the South African government, we don't need to limit the right to initiate to investors or maybe states, but also local communities. But the idea is still discussed. And I think that for me, even if I will be in favor of this approach, it is not without many challenges, but times will tell what it will be. So, yes, those are, in a few words, what I can say concerning the compatibility between uh, economic reforms and human rights obligations. And I, I know that there are, are many other techniques. So, but given the, the time constraint, I think this is uh, what we can I can say for the moment. And if uh, maybe in the context of another discussion or a conference, we can expand more on this uh, uh, on this topic. If there are people who want to reach out to you, maybe to collaborate in terms of some of the research topics that you have mentioned, where can they find you and how can they contact you? Yes, I think on the Center for Human Rights webpage, all of us are there. So this is one possibility, but also through my email, I mean, rj.cabre, as it is, uh, K-A-B-R-E at up.ac.za. So this is my email address. And yes, I think I will be happy to collaborate with them, to, to interact with them. Okay, thank you very much. Do you have some concluding remarks? Maybe first to thank you for this opportunity. I was happy to be uh, the guest today. And maybe I will conclude with this connection between economic reforms and human rights obligations since I'm also in the Center for Human Rights. To say that for me, and given the times we are living in, this is maybe the opportunities for African states to uh, better articulate their obligations. Since we'll have, it was for this year, but given the COVID-19, it will be probably next year, the discussion for the, the African Free Continental Trade Agreement uh, Protocol of Investment. So to better articulate this, because this is one of the most important part for our countries. If we want to fulfill our human rights obligation, we need to have clear rules for investment clear rules for all those aspects related to investment. So, thank you. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.